welcome to A Seat at the Table, a podcast bringing together feminism, dinner parties, female friendship and food. I'm Alex, your host, the creator of Spare Ribs Club, an intersectional feminist book and supper club which explores feminism and social justice through literature, art, music and food. Each episode, I invite our guests to take us through their perfect feminist dinner party, three feminist icons as dinner guests, three courses and three tunes being played on repeat. This week, I'm very pleased to welcome Dr. Alex Ketchum. Alex is a professor at the Institute for Gender, Sexuality and Feminist Studies of McGill University. She's the director of the Just Feminist Tech and Scholarship Lab and the organizer of Disrupting Disruptions, the feminist and accessible publishing, communications and tech speaker and workshop series. Her work integrates food, environmental, technological and gender history. Ketchum's most recently published book, Ingredients for Revolution, a history of American feminist restaurants, cafes, and coffee houses, is the first history of more than 230 feminist and lesbian feminist restaurants, cafes, and coffee houses that existed in the US from 1972 to the present. Ketchum's interest in past imaginings of utopia through business creation and the implementation of communications technologies has guided her new research and her third book project on historically contextualizing the relationship between feminist ethics and AI. Thank you so much, Alex, for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited. <laughs> so let's get started. Which three guests are you inviting over for your dream feminist dinner party? So I had to think about this for a long time, but I really wanted to have a group of people who I think would get along very well and would have a lot to talk about. So I invited Mindy Sue, Mimi Anuaha, and Claire L. Evans. And, and why those guests? What do they kind of mean to you and how have they inspired you? Yeah, so Mindy has written this book called The Cyberfeminism Index. She's an artist and she works around cyberfeminism and has created these amazing websites and is very creative. And then uh, Mimi is another artist who works on kind of art around data and AI. And she has this project called Missing Data Sets in which she looks at what data hasn't been collected on different marginalized communities. And then Claire L. Evans has written this great book called Broadband, The Untold Story of the Women Who Made the Internet. And she also is part of the band, the Grammy-nominated band Yacht, which is the name is like an acronym for Young Americans Challenging High Technology. And she has this really great creative practice, and she's really focused on kind of cyber feminisms. And um, I think these three folks would get along very well. I think they probably already know of each other and maybe have met at some point, but I really like to host dinner parties where I can just sit back and let people chat and kind of hear the ways that they're connecting over certain topics. I really like in my day-to-day -day life to kind of create these dinner parties to introduce people from different parts of my life. And I just want to hear them chat about different topics around feminism and technology and their artistic practices. Amazing. And do you think they would get on? Oh, I definitely think so. I think there's a lot of uh, parts of their work that kind of overlap in different ways, but they still approach the topics differently. So um, I would say that Mindy and Mimi are more visual artists and Claire is more of a musician and a writer, although all three of them are kind of mixed media. So I think they might have different kinds of approaches, but I think that there's definitely a lot that they would be able to kind of talk about. And they're all from 
they're all around kind of like the same age, same generation. Um, yeah, so, and I just think that there would be a lot of really interesting points that they would kind of chat about. And yeah, I think it would just be amazing to be at that table. Mm. So is this dinner party happening uh, at your home or elsewhere? Yeah, it I think it would definitely happen at my house because that's where, or my apartment in Montreal, because that's where I'm most comfortable. I love hosting people. And ideally it would happen kind of in early autumn because that's when the air is just a little bit crisp, but you still have all the amazing fresh vegetables. So ideally it would kind of happen on uh, my backyard kind of patio uh, in terms of eating. And there's kind of like lights in the garden. And I think it would just be really lovely to happen there. So your guests have arrived. What's mm -hmm. the first tune that you're putting on? Yeah, so, okay, I thought the music, that was really difficult to choose. <laughs> um, but I also wanted there to be kind of a way of this party kind of representing me and kind of the way that my own work has changed and my own relationship with feminism mm -hmm. has evolved over time. So I'd want to start with Mary J. Watkins, the Brick Hut song. So it's the song from 1970s off her um, album, Something Moving produced by Olivia Records, which was this women's music production company. And it's the song about the Brick Hut Cafe. It was a feminist restaurant in the Bay Area. It existed for 21 years. And the song is all about how everyone's welcome in the Brick Hut. And it's kind of funky. And it, I actually like to start a lot of kind of talks I give about feminist restaurant history with this song because I feel like it helps loosen people up. It just kind of brings a smile to people's face. And uh, the lyrics are really fun. That sounds like a, I want to listen to that one. <laughs> it's, it's yeah, I can send you a link to it. It's really <laughs> fun. Um, and then uh, the next song I think I would do would be something from Tegan and Sarah, maybe back in your head, uh, because they're awesome uh, lesbian Canadian musicians. Um, and so I just really, I like their music. I think that, so Claire's music has a lot of kind of electronic influences as is Tegan and Sarah's. And so I think that she would appreciate it. It would be also nice to kind of uh, locate us in the place of being in Canada. Um, so even though the three guests all live in the United States um, and I'm originally from the United States, I lived in Canada for 11 years. So I'd want to bring in that Canadian connection. That makes sense. Um, and how about your third tune? So the third one is, uh, it would be kind of like at points of the evening that are a bit more mellow. So a song from Noso, who's this awesome trans musician. Um, and I first heard their music on NPR's Tiny Desk, which I think is how I find a lot of new musicians. <laughs> um, and there's just this beautiful song by them called Everything I've Got. And it's just very mellow and soothing. Um, but I would say like anything off their kind of tiny desk that they did would be really nice. So you've got Mary J. Watkins playing in the background. You're in your garden uh, in Montreal. What's your first course that you're serving? And are, are you cooking or is someone else cooking? I'm definitely cooking because cooking is how I like to kind of create community. I love to bring people into my home. And I also oftentimes will like to do these kind of long fermentation projects or kind of longer complicated projects uh, so that I can just like share them with folks because if, you know, making it for one or two people isn't as fun. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, but I also like to create 
dinner parties where I've done all of the cooking in advance. So I can just be really part of the conversation. So it's like easy to grab. I don't need to like stand over the hob or anything mm -hmm. during the party. So uh, if it's happening kind of in early autumn, I'd want to start just with a really fresh salad um, with some of the ingredients grown from my garden because uh, I take a lot of pride in growing food um, in a city. And then also some of the um, salad ingredients from the community supported agriculture farm um, that I support. That's this cool trans uh, clear farm in the city, well, just outside the city of Montreal. Um, so yeah, so I would want to just have like a really fresh salad um, with like local ingredients. And then uh, the dressing uh, would be this like kind of historically important. I don't know if historically important, but there's this <laughs> salad dressing called um, green dyke dressing. Mm. So it's it's like pretty simple, which is like parsley and uboshi vinegar and apple cider vinegar and olive oil and garlic and lime or lemon just blend it up but it's like a recipe that has even been embroidered on this tapestry in the lesbian her story archives and I just like how it connects to this kind of like queer feminist culture with this one um, salad dressing so yeah so I think that would be um pretty awesome oh and I meant to mention that the farm is called it also has this beautiful name La Ferme au Champ qui chante which is the farm of the singing fields. So I just, I just love that that would kind of like infuse the salad um, with those positive musicality vibes. Um, so yeah. Yeah, I am. Um, yeah, I looked up the kind of piece of embroidery that you were talking about. And it's, I think from the 1970s, isn't it? Or maybe, mm -hmm. yeah. And it's this beautiful kind of green embroidered recipe of this um, green salad dressing, a little bit like green goddess dressing, I guess, but kind of yeah, a 70s version, I suppose. So that's, um, uh, yeah, a really lovely addition. Um, and how about for your next course? So kind of going off that 70s theme, because I've been obsessed about 1970s feminist food cultures for quite a long time. I worked on a project for 12 years about that. Um, so uh, one of the feminist restaurants I've written about quite a lot is Bloodroot Feminist Vegetarian Restaurant and Bookstore located in Bridgeport, Connecticut. And they've produced a variety of cookbooks. So they've been in business since 1977 and their first cookbook, The Political Palette came out in 1980. And there's a lot of great recipes in there. Um, so it's hard to choose, but I would probably bake one of their breads. Um, so they have this oatmeal sunflower seed bread that's quite delicious. And that would be paired with um, a curried squash soup um, from the Moosewood cookbook, uh, because Moosewood is just this uh, historically important vegetarian restaurant founded in Ithaca, New York in 1970s. Um, but Moosewood has always kind of posed a problem for me, um, like in kind of defining what feminist restaurants are so I kind of like to have that like tension on the plate it's not like a terrible problem just a definitional problem so um it's kind of an insider joke for me because <laughs> while the guests would be having these conversations about feminism and technology which is where a lot of my work is now I would want to kind of have this like underlying kind of uh, history on the plate that's also related to my own uh, work history and my own interests so that's kind of why I have the, that 70s connection there. I love that. I um, When I received your menu and I was reading through it, 
the, the words that are used like blood root and moosewood are kind of like I don't know almost this kind of fantasy you know circa middle ages to <laughs> the terminology for food I was kind of imagining a kind of mixture of Studio Ghibli and kind of um, yeah, like Minecraft. <laughs> so that kind of feeling. I love that. Yeah, and in terms of this, also kind of like nineteen seventies, kind of back to the land, kind of centering on the earth, and yeah. So there's kind of a lot of restaurants from that period, especially feminist restaurants, that kind of draw on that kind of like earth imagery or goddess imagery, like lots of places called like Artemis or full moon and stuff yeah. like that so it also brings up this kind of magical feeling mm. and what are you drinking alongside your food so I'm really into beer I love beer <laughs> um I like brewing beer but I'd also want the meal to highlight just as the kind of recipes highlight a lot of kind of queer and lesbian feminist uh food makers and farmers I'd want the beer to have a similar representation and also to be kind of highlighting some of the Montreal brewers. So um, Jennifer Nadwani is a master brewer who now works at Harikana. And so some of her brews, um, but I'd also just, there's this amazing society called the Pink Boots Society that supports uh, women brewers. And so I'd kind of want to have like all of the dishes paired with different um, brews that were done by women brewers or women owned breweries. So I I know that not everyone's like super into beer. So I'd obviously want my guests to be comfortable and have different like waters and like maybe like a hibiscus iced tea as a non-alcoholic option. But I think in terms of like what I would center on the menu would be um, a different beer paired with each course, kind of moving from a lighter beer to a darker beer um, with the dessert course. Oh, delicious. So yeah, what are you serving next for your food? Okay, so this was really difficult for me to choose. I used to work at a wedding cake and special events bakery. So I used to make a lot of cakes. Um, but, and I was really actually tempted to make Bloodroot's chocolate sourdough devastation cake that has sourdough in it, um, because that's been an important cake in my own life. Um, I've made it at really kind of pivotal moments. But I've recently been on a pie making rampage and there's this amazing cookbook um, called Sister Pie. It's named after the Sister Pie Bakery in Detroit. So while they don't call themselves necessarily a feminist bakery, they highlight uh, their triple bottom line business. So people, profits, and place. And so their cookbook is very seasonal and uh, they really try to support their local farmers. And so, and the recipes all work so well. I used to find pie making difficult, but everything I make from this book works amazingly. So I really recommend it. And uh, because it would be kind of early autumn and we have so many amazing apples in the Northeast um, and in Quebec, I would really want to do their um, the recipe for the apple sage gouda pie. So you put gouda in the pie crust and then you put sage and apples in the pie itself. And it's just so lovely. And I'd serve it with a vanilla ice cream that I would like make in advance. So that way I can actually make the real proper custard ice cream and have a very rich ice cream to go alongside this pie. Oh, that sounds delicious. I can't, 
imagine if it is it more it's more sweet than savory presumably it I mean it's like generally pretty sweet but there's that like savoriness in the crust and also it the recipe recommends an aged gouda so you got that umami flavor that's really nice and with the aged gouda you oftentimes have where there's like those little bits where it's kind of like the salt has aggregated in certain spots so you get this kind of like crunch too which is really lovely so you get a bunch of different textures but then the inside is so um like I know a lot of people don't like the word moist but it's very moist and <laughs> it's, just, it's just wonderful and sweet but it's not too sweet and the sage just gives it this interesting added note so you kind of go through the butteriness and the crunchiness of the crust and then you get that like rich, sweet, moist apple. And then you get this kind of end note of the sage. So there's every bite has this like level of complexity. And then with the ice cream, right, you got the cold and the other kind of sweet. So it's just, honestly, it's like the perfect pie. <laughs> Sounds amazing. I, I don't think, well, I mean, we do pies pretty well in the UK, but I've never had a apple and gouda pie. So I, I definitely want to try it. That I highly recommend it but there's also lots of other great pie recipes in the book so it was really hard to choose but that one is one I also consistently can like make pretty well <laughs> without having to like stress so much about trying to get certain ingredients so yeah delicious and um, how's your end your evening kind of ending are you ending with coffee or are you kind of going on into the early hours of the next morning um, so yeah, so I think we would have kind of like coffee, maybe watered down a little bit so it's not too strong because it's nighttime. Mm -hmm. um, and then I'd want to serve the coffee with like chocolates on the side, um, which oftentimes happens. I find like in continental Europe, people will give you little chocolates with your coffee, but I'd want them to be special chocolates. There's this amazing uh, feminist anarchist vegan chocolatier named Augusta Yearwood. Uh, who runs a few different companies, but Lagusta's Luscious is her chocolate company. And all of her chocolates are just so amazing. And so maybe her strawberry balsamic, like chocolate bonbons um, paired with like a kind of uh, like mini espresso maybe. Um, and then, yeah, so I am not a late night owl. Like I, I tend to like to go to bed <laughs> pretty early and I have a dog. So usually when I have people over, I kick people out because I'm like, oh, I need to walk my dog Sprout. Um, <laughs> so like usually by 1030, but I usually start my dinner parties really early. So I ask people to come around 5 p.m. Mm -hmm. So it's still quite a lot of time. It's just a bit earlier in the yeah. day. But I also imagine, so having this group of three amazing women together, there's also a bunch of other people I'd want to invite. And some of, I can just imagine some friends coming from like other gigs or, you know, different work things or political things so just kind of like maybe opening up the rest of the evening to have more people stop in because oftentimes when I throw parties or events I invite sometimes like up to 30 people because I know they'll just kind of pop in a bit so I think it could be a cool way to bring some of those other folks I wanted to invite over like Suzanne Kite who's this amazing Lakota Dakota artist and composer who brings together like AI and like indigenous ontologies and like Meredith Whitaker, who's like the president of Signal. It's just like all these people, like Mother Cyborg, um, like all these people who I would just want to be able to be in the same room because they like speak about each other's work, but they haven't all had the opportunity to hang out. And so I'd really just like to kind of like 
curate that space in my backyard so they could hang out. And I just kind of imagine myself just like bringing them food and like writing down notes about what they're saying. Um, so <laughs> I could just like imagine just like continuing to serve like maybe that coffee and then maybe like some tea and like sparkling water mm-hmm. to like just kind of encourage them to keep talking. Yeah. And then at 1030, I'd be like, oh, Sprout needs a walk. Okay, you all have to leave. <laughs> I mean, that sounds like a pretty well, well-oiled, um, you know, machine kind of, you know, exactly what time <laughs> you want to take Sprout for a walk. And then, and then that's a good uh, kind of opportunity for them to leave. I don't think there's anything, there's nothing wrong with that, especially as you start early. It's kind of, it's quite a, it's quite a good thing, quite a good way of doing things. It's been funny listening to other episodes when people are like, oh, maybe I'd end early, like 1 a.m. And I'm just like, 1 a.m., wow. Um, But I just wake up really early to run my dog. And yeah, so my friends always tease me that I always put an end time on any invitation too. I'm just like start time, end time. Um, Because I did used to sometimes have someone pop in at like 10.30 and I'm like, oh no, like I'm putting my pajamas on soon. Um, So yeah, so I think that would be nice. And I think some of the folks you know, they're like artists and performers that they might go out afterwards, but I think I'd rather kind of like wrap it up then while my energy is still feeling good and, uh, you know, encourage them to network with other folks. I really like to be a person that helps people connect. And so I think that's how I would want to use this dinner party. I mean, yeah, as someone who also sometimes lacks in energy I do like going out but you know if an evening ends at 10 30 I never I don't complain about it (laughs) um I'd love to talk to you more about your kind of career and your work um I know that your work in academia adopts a feminist stance in its approach to equity and you focus on how academia and scholarship can be made more accessible for historically mm-hmm. marginalized people how in your work are you able to shift those traditional perspectives towards inclusivity okay that's a great question and there's a lot of kind of levels to it and I think it comes through all my different roles in academia so as a professor I really try to not assume prior knowledge of my students in the classroom. I try to always define terms. I want to break down those kinds of barriers in a classroom where there's a lot of assumptions about where people are coming from and their backgrounds. And I want students to feel open to discuss ideas and learn new terms and never feel stupid for not knowing something. Um, I think it has to do with the kind of authors I put on a syllabus and the work that I share. In my role as kind of a researcher and writer, some of that work is in terms of sharing uh, the lessons that I've learned. I Something that kind of underlies all of my work is I don't want people to always have to rebuild the wheel, reinvent the wheel. So if I figured out a process that can streamline something or make something more accessible, I usually put out a zine or a blog post or I write about in a book that I also make open access so people can begin from that point, that they don't have to kind of start again and go through the same struggles I did. I always see my work as just one part of the puzzle. I'm not trying to hoard my knowledge. Instead, I want people to take what I've done and make it better and build on it. And so that's kind of a principle that is guiding all of my work. I don't think that any of my work is the be all end all. I want it to just be something that others can make better. 
And it also is in terms of where I share knowledge. So I'll do events at feminist bookstores and public libraries and other spaces to kind of bring knowledge from the academy into the communities where it can actually be used and useful and shared in ways that aren't uh, difficult to access in terms of where it's published or the language that I'm using. Um, so yeah, so I think those are a few of the ways, but in terms of sharing knowledge, it's, I mean, there's ways that we can do it with all of our work. And I think in many of our fields, but I think a big part is sharing those kind of hard learned lessons. So others don't need to endure that same struggle. Mm. I mean, you're advocating for kind of breaking down these barriers in academia, those barriers affecting women, but also Indigenous people and people of colour, queer people, disabled people. How do you feel academia needs to change so that those bar barriers continue to be broken down beyond you? Oh, wow. <laughs> so many ways. I think I especially am at a very elite, prestigious institution, and prestigious institutions oftentimes keep their status through exclusion. And so I think in many ways, there needs to be an overhaul of a lot of the academic system, because I think a lot of the infrastructure and internal systems in universities isn't so much about sharing knowledge and doing research, but instead about maintaining power hierarchies. So there needs to be complete rethinking of the way that courses are designed, how many students are in a classroom, um, the whole thing about how we grade, the role of grades, the cost of attending university. Um, Canada is not as bad as the States, but it still is quite expensive. Um, in terms of who is encouraged to pursue graduate studies, the kinds of positions that are available after someone completes a PhD and wants to be a professor. There's so few positions. For the past five years, I've been a faculty lecturer, so a non-tenure track position with, um, without that much institutional support and a lot of teaching. Um, so just like changing the way that people are compensated for their work, changing the kinds of ways that scholarship is evaluated in many fields, in many disciplines, there's still a lot of emphasis on like a single authored monograph versus if you're someone who shares scholarship through podcasting or shares scholarship through zines or workshops or policy reports. There's so many ways that our systems continue to value only certain kinds of knowledges. And I think that requires so much overhaul. So um, I don't want to pretend that I can do all of those changes, but I think that I can and others can start to kind of chip away at some of this. But, you know, many of these institutions really are about kind of preserving the hierarchies and who is seen as elite and who has access to power and connections. And so I think there's a lot of ways we can approach this. Mm. I mean, uh, your most recent book, Ingredients for Revolution, I guess kind of it breaks down those barriers in a way of of um, making that knowledge around feminist restaurants and queer restaurants kind of more accessible. What what did you learn while writing that book, other than kind of the immense <laughs> amount of different feminist restaurants around the US? What, what did you kind of learn? 
Yeah. Okay. So I worked on that project for 12 years. So even though it's my second book, it's, I kind of wrote it first because it was my PhD dissertation and parts were my master's. So there are a lot of lessons. And I think I also learned a lot about myself in the process too, because I started the project when I was 20 years old. So uh, sometimes it's hard to disentangle the self from the research, but I think things that I experimented with that really worked out for the project were I shared my initial findings really early on on a website I created in 2013 called thefeministrestaurantproject.com. There was never a directory of feminist restaurants before I had to build it um, with a variety of methods, like looking through travel guides, looking through periodicals, advertisement sections, finding random business cards through oral history interviews, through finding posters of traveling musicians, all these different things. So I was trying to assemble this directory just to kind of know like what existed, where did it exist? And I shared those initial lists online. I distributed them in different Facebook networks. And I just asked people, tell me if there's mistakes, tell me if places I'm missing. And I still encourage people to reach out to me and they do. So I keep adding to the directory. And so I think kind of crowdsourcing that knowledge was a really important lesson. It was also an important lesson in certain mistakes I made. So there's maps tied to the directory. And early on, I spent so much time learning GIS, like mapping technology stuff and trying to make this fancy map where people could kind of post comments onto the map and share their own stories. But I found out no one was interested in that. And they actually just preferred me using a Google map and them emailing me information. <laughs> um, so like, it's also good to realize like, you need to keep touching base with the communities that you're trying to be accountable to mm -hmm. um, in your work and be flexible and like listen to what folks are saying. Um, so I think that was an important lesson. And then I think a big takeaway from the book itself is while it's focused, so it's from it's on the history of feminist restaurants, cafes and coffee houses in the US from 1972 to 2022. Um, or till present, basically. Um, but a lot of the lessons that we learn from those feminist restaurants are more about also what it means to try to make a business feminist, the challenges in trying to live out feminist and social justice values under a capitalist system, um, and how there's these ties between generations, how we can see changes within feminism. So I think those are kind of like the big things. And for our folks who are listening, um, I always have open access versions of all of my work. So while you can like buy the paperback version, which is great, um, but, uh, and there it's also sold at some bookshops in the UK as well, mm -hmm. uh, such as Common Word um, Bookshop and also um, Gaze the Word, or sorry, Common Press Bookshop and Gaze yeah. the Word in London um, yeah. should have copies for you and Common Press should have signed copies still. Um, you can also read, um, online version of it as well yeah. so amazing I come free <laughs> is one of my favorite bookshops it's a yeah it's a great bookshop in Brick Lane for those who haven't who haven't been it's queer owned and kind of does get uh, yeah queer literature and that kind of thing and it's a yeah a great space as well um I mean I'd love to know what your favorite um I don't know the favorite kind of restaurant or story that you came across in your 12 years of research that might be a hard question <laughs> oh yeah that's so hard because it's been so many stories um yeah okay so 
Like I already talked about blood roots. So I think I'll highlight um, some of the other spaces instead. So there's there was this one location called the Common Woman Club in Northampton, Massachusetts. And the, many of these restaurants were operating on very small budgets. You know, that put them in a lot of precarity. It was usually funded through kind of crowdfunding. Uh, they would host dances, they would host different events, do catering to raise enough money. People put in some of their own money um, because a lot of, for a lot of folks, bank financing wasn't feasible. In the United States, before the passage of the Equal Credit Opportunity Act, it was legal for banks to deny women credit. So they couldn't get credit cards in their own name, really difficult to get loans. Their father or husband had to sign on. And so especially for lesbians, for younger women, for women rejected by their families, like just bank financing wasn't um, possible. So a lot of these restaurants, folks were doing a lot of sweat equity, putting in just so much unpaid time and labor, doing hard backbreaking work. And so there's this time when uh, someone found out that there's going to be like an estate sale and they could get an oven for very, very cheap, which they needed for the restaurant. But they didn't have enough money to rent a truck to transport the oven. So there were there's a group of lesbians who are trying to carry this oven on their backs through the middle of the street and just like shifting who was carrying it. And so I just see this image of, if you've ever been to Northampton, Massachusetts, it's a pretty small kind of college town where Smith College is located. And just this group of women walking down the street trying to carry this oven. And yeah, I think that's like quite, quite a wonderful image. <laughs> I love that. Um, well, I'm sure lots of our members will definitely want to give the book um, a read. I certainly do. Um, I mean, thank you so much for talking us to, to us today. I, I loved your dinner party. Um, I thought it was such a lovely evening uh, that you described. Um, I always ask my guests one final question, uh, which is, what are you doing on an everyday basis in a small way to become a better feminist? Yeah, I love this question because I think there's the part of how I'm trying to become a better feminist for myself and that how I'm trying to become a better feminist for others. So on the one hand, I'm always trying to read a lot, be open, listen to critique, constantly grow, um, shifting my own perspectives around just new information. Uh, and so that's just like an ongoing process of learning and unlearning, which I think is really important. I really appreciate how uh, feminist activist and Black Panther Angela Davis, when she is in positions where she's invited to speak, and there's oftentimes younger feminists who are also at the event, she opens up a lot of space for listening and using her position to give people a platform. So I think that's really important to just always, no matter what position you're in to continue to be humble and to grow and to learn. And then now that I'm a little more established in my career, um, I'm always trying to use wherever I'm at to help bring people up with me. So anytime I have a platform to speak, I want to highlight the work of amazing other feminists, community organizations, and just continue to anytime that there's a spotlight that shines a bit on me to shine it onto others. Uh, so I think that's really important to not feel in competition with others, but instead think of how we can support each other. That's a lovely, lovely answer, bringing up others and not 
you know taking them with you that's um a great answer well thank you so much alex for um joining us today thank you so much for having me this was so fun